This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Morning, everyone. It is hump day. Wednesday. Wednesday. And there is a lot of news to get to this morning. Five things to know for this Wednesday, September 20th. In just hours, Attorney General Merrick Garland will testify before Congress, and he will say he is not the president's lawyer and not Congress's prosecutor. And keeping our eyes on the Capitol, Republican dysfunction in the House. It continues a handful of far-right conservatives blocking debate on a Pentagon spending bill as the clock ticks down to a government shutdown. And Donald Trump's ex-assistant says the former president told her to play dumb about classified documents, according to reports. Also, new federal charges in the fentanyl death of a one-year-old child at a daycare center in the Bronx. Investigators say they found a kilogram of that drug on top of playmats. Writers in Hollywood studios will be back at the negotiating table today after five months of strikes. It comes as the auto worker strike enters day six. Seen in this morning starts right now. You know, Wednesday can be a hard day, middle of the can week, it? hump day. You know, it's, you kind of grind through it, and it's a little bit like House Republicans trying to grind through no end in sight. Do not no compare Friday our Wednesday to, to what House, Wednesday. House Republicans are going <laughs> At least we right know now. where Friday is. They have no <laughs> idea or concept where the end game is as it currently stands. They're also having a major hearing today, which we're going to have eyes on, and that's where we start new this morning. We're getting a sneak peek at Attorney General Merrick Garland's testimony as he prepares to testify and defend himself on Capitol Hill. Just hours from now, Garland is set to appear before the House Judiciary Committee. We're expecting him to forcefully rebuke Republicans who have accused him of weaponizing and politicizing the Justice Department. Also, CNN this morning has obtained excerpts of Garland's opening remarks. He will tell the committee that the DOJ's, quote, job is not to take orders from the president, nor from Congress, or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate. That's a quote. This will be a rare opportunity for House Republicans to question Garland face-to-face on live television about the criminal probe against Donald Trump, probes against Donald Trump, and the federal investigation of Hunter Biden. Let's bring in CNN national security and justice reporter Zachary Cohen. There's so much to get to here with Garland. And the, the framing of this with all of the politics involved is going to make it, I think, even more explosive. And he's anticipating that, isn't he, with these remarks that we've received? Yeah, absolutely. A little bit of a preempting um, on Garland's end here. And look, we expect him to really emphasize the point that when it comes to investigating and indicting, the Justice Department stands on its own. It isn't influenced by the White House or Congress. It makes charging decisions and investigative decisions as its own entity. And that is really a central point of what Garland is going to say in front of the House Judiciary Committee today. Um, One expert excerpt really hones in on that point. It says, look, I am not the president's lawyer. I will also add that I'm not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. You know, again, making clear that when it comes to investigating and criminal charges, the Justice Department makes those decisions outside of political influence. Now, look, uh, Republicans and Democrats are going to have their chance to question Garland directly. As you said, um, Republicans are really going to probably focus on 
two main issues, right? Hunter Biden, this idea and the claims that he got a sweetheart plea deal. Also, that there was claims of political influence over the investigation of Hunter Biden. And they also want to ask questions about the two indictments of Donald Trump by Special Counsel Jack Smith. Expect a lot of questions on those topics today. Zach, I want to underscore, I think, Poppy's very salient point, which is this was planned, right? Doing the excerpts, the way that they're structuring this, the fact they're putting it out before the hearing, but also the specific elements they're putting out. They have a plan here to get in front of this, including on the criticism that Garland and other Justice Department and FBI officials have faced from Republicans, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and they want to make the point that when it comes to career officials at the Justice Department, Garland does not think that they should be publicly criticizing. In fact, it, it's dangerous. He One quote says, all of us at the Justice Department recognize that with this work comes public scrutiny, criticism, and legitimate oversight, but singling out individual career public servants who are just doing their job is dangerous, particularly at a time of increased threats to the safety of public servants and their families. We will not be intimidated. We will do our jobs free from outside interference, and we will not back down from, de- from defending our democracy. So some defiance in there from Garland um, setting the stage for his appearance on the Hill today. All right, Jack Cohen, going to be a busy day. Thanks, man. This is the first time that Attorney General Garland will testify since Donald Trump and Hunter Biden were indicted. So you could say it's a big deal. Many Republicans in Congress have been zeroing in on the power of investigations for years, alleging a double standard. You can expect to hear a lot about that today. Just listen to this from Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan. At the heart of all this is the disparate treatment, the unequal application of the law, the double standard. In the Hunter Biden case, Republicans allege that the Justice Department had its thumb on the scale. They point to, among other things, this testimony from IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley. The Justice Department allowed the president's political appointees to weigh in on whether they're charged the president's son. I watched United States Attorney Weiss tell a room full of senior FBI and IRS senior leaders on October 7th, 2022, that he was not the deciding person on whether char- charges were filed. So what he was talking about there was then U.S. Attorney David Weiss, who is now, by the way, a special counsel in this probe. CNN did just get a hold of new transcripts from a number of FBI and IRS officials that say they do not remember Weiss ever saying that he was not in charge of this decision about where to charge. And Attorney General Garland said as much when he testified. This is all the way back in March. I have promised to ensure that he's able to carry out uh, his investigation and that he be able to run it. And if he uh, needs to bring it in another jurisdiction, he will have full authority to do that. Let's bring in CNN anchor and senior political analyst John Avalon. What I just said and read, I think, is confusing probably to a lot There's of a people. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. confusing to me. I had to go through it a few times. So why does it matter? Because this this is the first time the attorney general is addressing two urgent issues affecting the whole country. One is the ongoing special counsel investigation into the former president. And the other is this impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Merrick Garland, as the attorney general, is the person uniquely capable of addressing those partisan concerns. And he's walking a line here. But he's walking a line, I think you saw Zach Cohen refer to part of his testimony. I'm not the president's lawyer. It's important people understand that about the attorney general. I'm also not Congress's prosecutor. And there is an attempt to politicize justice in our country to reduce faith in law and order and justice. Uh, And so this is a chance for the attorney general to try to draw a bright line and clear that up. So, by the way, I would add were his decisions to make both these investigations under special counsel status so that 
that should remove any concern. But in this bizarre world we are living in politically, people project their grievances onto almost anything. Garland has several times now, at least twice in congressional testimony, said explicitly that David Weiss had the authority, if he wanted to, to pursue whatever he wanted to, obviously going against what we heard from the IRS whistleblower. We're laying out that there have been others who were in yes. that meeting that have different recollections of things. If he does that again, I think every expectation is he will. He's never hedged from that. Today, does that put to rest the idea that the thumb was on the scale here? It won't put it to rest because there are people deeply invested in pumping up that narrative to rile up their base on the right, to fundraise off those claims of conspiracy, to say they're unequal uh, you know, standards of justice in this country. Of course, the core principle in our country is equal justice under law. Um, and, you know, look, I think when, when Shepley came forward as an IRS whistleblower, that deserves to be taken seriously. Yeah, two of them came yeah, forward. It came they, very credibly. They're contemporaneous notes. CNN's new reporting showing that there are several other employees, including his then direct supervisor, who don't recall that, is itself significant, particularly against the weight of whether this is going to build into a credible impeachment inquiry. Um, so you need to balance all this appropriately in your mind. That requires being fair minded. And that's what people on Capitol Hill don't seem to be. In the context of all of this is the plea deal falling apart and now the Justice that's Department right. indicting Hunter Biden on the gun charges before they were allowing to basically go through a you know, diversion program. Right, which is a very big deal, especially yeah. given that very few people yeah. are indicted on this statute. Can we get to you on this, Maggie Haberman? Let's do it. Once again, his great reporting in The Times. This is fascinating. So this is about um, Trump allegedly telling one of his closest aides, Ms. Michael, basically... You don't know anything about these boxes. This is talking about the Mar-a-Lago Mar probe, right? Classified documents, et cetera. Um, and that's significant. Let's explain who she is vis-a-vis -vis Trump. I want to play this from Sarah Matthews from the former Trump administration. So this is someone he knew very well who would have had a lot of face time with the president. And they can't simply dismiss her, you know, as someone that he would uh, not be aware of or who wouldn't be in the know because she was quite literally sitting right outside the most important office in the world, someone who the president knew by name. And I think that makes her a very credible witness. Quote Maggie's reporting, a former assistant to Trump has informed investigators that the former president told her to say she did not know anything about the boxes containing classified documents. It is a very big deal because she was his gatekeeper. She was his executive assistant. The fact she's speaking to prosecutors and saying that the former president ordered her to deny information during an official inquiry um, not only speaks to the president's state of mind and a, a apparent sort of obstruction, um, but the, for the Trump folks, the calls are coming from inside the House at this point. These are people who can't be dismissed as having partisan access to grind. These are folks who are and were very close to the former president. And that's what happens when sort of the gears of justice start to grind. Uh, some things are beyond politics. And, and she has credibility because of her proximity. It's going to be tough to demonize. John Avalon, stick around. Thanks, well, also this morning, there are only a few days left uh, in before the deadline for government funding. House Republicans struggling to salvage a spending deal before that deadline to avert a shutdown. I think we're 10 days, 10 plus days. There it is. 10 days, 18 hours, 49 missed, minutes, and everything's going great. <laughs> Lawmakers are going back and forth over the issue. They were forced to delay a procedural vote on a defense spending bill 
And then they met behind closed doors for four hours and seemed to have made little progress. CNN finds that right now, at least 15 members are opposed and even more are undecided, which, of course, would sink any effort without any Democratic support. CNN's Lauren Fox joins us now and somehow has been keeping track of all of this. Lauren, uh, historically, there are stages to this process, which is defiance, uh, thrashing, outrage, uh, denial, grief, and then reality. Where are we in that very scientific stages process? Well, we're certainly in the thrashes stage right now, Phil, to put it scientifically. There was a marathon meeting yesterday in the WHIP's office as members from every corner of the conference were coming in and out as they were trying to figure out their path forward. Kelly Armstrong telling one of our colleagues, Haley Talbot, that it was sort of a therapy session. People were laughing, crying, trying to come up with any path forward. And right now, there just isn't one among Republicans. You have hardliners who are asking for some kind of agreement on a top line spending number somewhere around $1.47 trillion with promises to vote on other appropriations bills one by one. But it's not clear that even that would unlock some other hardliners who have traditionally never voted for a short-term spending bill, Phil. The infighting from the Republican majority in the House wages on, barreling the U.S. government toward a shutdown at the end of the month. Well, I'm not a fan of government shutdowns. I've seen a few of them over the years. They never have produced a policy change, and they've always been a loser for Republicans uh, politically. The Republican infighting has threatened House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's leadership position, but McCarthy is vowing to bring a vote to the floor Thursday for a Republican-negotiated short-term spending bill, despite already having to pull a procedural vote Tuesday. Listen, I think the best way to handle anything is you work through this conference and you get the work done, and that's what we're doing. More than a dozen GOP lawmakers are refusing to support the continuing resolution, forcing moderate lawmakers from both parties to look at other options to avoid a shutdown. The so-called Problem Solvers Caucus is set to meet today, along with House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. Democrats have always stepped in uh, to save us in situations like this, but you have to have a Republican Party that's willing to compromise, that's willing to work with us. The group is looking at a plan that could include the use of an arcane measure called a discharge petition, which includes a complex set of maneuvers that would allow the House to send a spending bill to the Senate. That option could include a temporary stopgap measure that could keep spending at current levels, provide money for natural disasters, perhaps aid to Ukraine, and could include some border security provisions. Well, if, if moderate Republicans sign a discharge petition with Democrats, they are signing their own political death warrant. If the clown show of colleagues that refuse to actually govern uh, does not want to pass a CR, uh, I will do everything we need to to make sure that a CR passes. Uh, the bottom line here is this, we're not shutting the government down. Further complicating matters, a crucial defense bill is still in limbo in Congress. Five individual members of the Republican conference that are solely responsible for this happening. I think it's disrespectful to our active duty. Uh, to our veterans and our current service members. Uh, they deserve better than this from Congress. Uh, it's a good bill. And the impact of a government shutdown on the economy would be 
insurmountable. Some Republicans are arguing you're going to expect furloughs for federal workers. Armed service members could go without pay, not to mention the long-term effects that this could have on the economy. Phil? All right, Lauren Fox, keep us posted. Thank you. So we do have some new reporting this morning on the concerns major Republican donors have about former President Trump becoming the nominee again. And we'll take you live to the picket line of Great American City, my hometown, Toledo, Ohio, with how the auto strike is impacting families. Every dollar, every cent is accounted for, whether it goes for food, electric, gas, rent. It's ketchup and hot dogs instead of having ketchup, hot dogs and applesauce. You know, it's just like it's like one less thing on the plate. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, welcome back. Turning now to the auto strike. CNN has learned that negotiators with the union are set to sit down with GM and Ford today. Another planned meeting with Stellantis is set for tomorrow. Detroit's big three are under pressure with the UAW threatening to call more strikes on Friday if more progress isn't made. Thousands of workers are starting their sixth day on the picket line this morning and in some cases attempting to adjust to the realities of strike pay. Our Gabe Cohen is live in Toledo, Ohio. Gabe, I'm so glad that you've been talking to them about this because they get a little bit of money from this fund, right? But it's not what they're used to. Yeah, Poppy, that's right. And look, along this picket line, so many workers have told me they are prepared to strike for as long as it takes. But as we enter day six, some of these members in the city of Toledo are bracing for the potential financial impact of shutting down these plants. My favorite toy. April Kolzak's morning ritual hasn't changed. Your toothbrush, which one's yours? But providing for her three boys. Getting down to the bare minimum here. Just got much more difficult. 
I have to check my bank account every day. This third generation Jeep worker and single mom typically makes about 19 bucks an hour working an overnight shift at the Stellantis factory. Hopefully we get back to work. But with her plant now on strike, April has to figure out a way to live on her union provided strike pay. Just $500 a week, roughly half, she says, of what she's used to. It's not much when you have three kids. Oh, definitely not. No, <laughs> you're really tightening the belt right now. Yeah, yes. Every dollar, every cent is accounted for, whether it goes for food, electric, gas, rent. It's ketchup and hot dogs instead of having ketchup, hot dogs, and applesauce. You know, it's just like, it's like one less thing on the plate. No wheel! No Close to 5,800 Toledo auto workers are striking, and many face a similar financial strain. I'll be out there as long as, as, long as I need to. It's already squeezing neighborhood businesses like Zinger's Bar and Grill, located near the plant. Factory workers typically drop in for lunch or after their shifts. How much is business down? It's down probably about a good like 65 to 70 percent. Violet Wagner has been a bartender here for more than 30 years. I'm just praying that they come to some type of agreement and that it gets better. Because if not, I, I mean, I may have to look for other employment as well. <laughs> Beyond these picketers, Toledo is home to a network of auto suppliers that are starting to feel the impact of the strike. No justice, no with thousands already losing work. Local government officials estimate a month-long strike could cost the Toledo area economy about 36 to 50 million dollars. This is Toledo. It's a union town. We have a great history of supporting our workforce. County Commissioner Pete Gherkin shows his solidarity, having worked at this factory for 30 years. When these workers voted to go out, they knew that. They knew that. This, this was not a naive audience. Uh, and they are clever enough and resourceful enough. The local union is now building a food pantry, piling up donations for any struggling workers. I signed up for Instacart. Some, like Erica Mitchell, feel the need to line up temporary jobs in case the strike drags. I still want to find something else to do while my kids are at school to make a couple extra dollars to cover, you know, just surprises. With kids, you never know what can happen. And when I got into Jeep, it was like, yes, finally, like my dad did it, my grandpa did it. Now I can finally give my kids the same option. Opportunity. Like many of these workers, April says she's prepared to weather this short-term pain. Hopeful an agreement can be reached soon. It's only temporary. We're going to get back to work. That's, I try to keep that positive mindset as much as I can. And Poppy, this could be felt in other communities if the union does, in fact, expand this strike on Friday, as the union president, Sean Fain, has said they might. But again, the message I'm hearing from workers, Poppy, it's that short-term pain for long-term gain. Yeah, you can see it playing out. Thank you for always bringing us the human elements of this. Appreciate the reporting. Well, coming up, why the White House is no longer deploying its top two advisors to Detroit to tackle the auto strike and... What we're learning about the violent confrontation at Sunday night's Dolphins-Patriots game that led to the sudden death of a fan. Stay with us. Well, this morning, former President Trump is headed back to Iowa for back-to-back -back events. Right now, Trump is by far and away the undisputed frontrunner for the Republican nomination at this point. And that, of course, has some major GOP donors quite worried. With the second debate next week and Trump planning to skip that debate, like he did the first, they fear time is running out for an alternative candidate to break away from the pack and that another Trump nomination 
could mean another loss to President Joe Biden. CNN's Steve Contorno live for us in St. Petersburg, Florida with more. Steve, your story is fascinating. One, because there are so many analogs to 2016 on some level, but also it's this internal debate donors are having of, well, if Trump's going to be the nominee, I might as well get behind him because I don't want to be on his bad side, but I still don't like him. And yet here we are. That, that's right, Phil. And these donors that we spoke with are looking at the size of this debate stage next week, and they are cringing at just how many candidates are still in this race. They want to see this field consolidate. And they, the concern is that the window is closing for someone to demonstrate that they are a viable alternative, that the window is closing for someone to break out. We talked to one donor, for example, Freight 11, uh, who told us, quote, I don't know if there's anything I can do to have an impact on this race. Every Republican's dilemma right now is do we try and undermine and destroy Trump only to have it come back and haunt us because he's the candidate and it's Trump or Biden. And the result is we're seeing a lot of donors right now remain on the sidelines. Ken Griffin, uh, a hedge fund manager who's very wealthy and has previously suggested that he liked Ron DeSantis, he's now saying he's still waiting to see who emerges as a viable uh, alternative to Donald Trump. But that is also creating somewhat of a catch-22 for these candidates. You know, it's the donors want to see someone break out. But as you know, Phil, you need money and resources to project strength, to get your message out, and to have that moment so you can catch lightning in a bottle if you have a strong debate performance. So that is why there is so much emphasis on next Wednesday's second debate, because it's not just an audition for potential Republican primary voters and caucus goers. It's also an audition for these donors who remain on the sidelines, Phil. That's a great point. Steve Contorno, it's great reporting on CNN.com. Thank you. Well, joining us now, Bloomberg White House and politics editor Mario Park, Parker, Semaphore Politics reporter Shelby Talcott, and John Avlon is back with us. Um, you would note that uh, Steve's story, donors still think that there's a possibility to coalesce behind somebody, so they back your perspective that the race isn't over. Um, but before we get to that, real quick, I, I want to swing back to the auto strike, Mario, because you uh, know White House officials quite well. You covered the building. We were in the briefing room together quite often. Um, the decision not to send uh, Julie Sue, the acting labor secretary, and uh, Gene Sperling, who's been running point for them on this issue— at the same time, Trump and his team are kind of going all in, trying to peel off rank-and-file union officials. Why? Well, you're saying for the Biden White House, uh, the air of responsibility, right? We saw some of this earlier this year with the East Palestine, Ohio trail derailment, where President Biden was being asked in a briefing room about whether he'd visit, right, the optics around it. And the message that we got from the White House at the time was that, no, we'll stay on the sidelines. It's not responsible for us to bring the presidential apparatus into that town. The, the White House has taken that same tact with this, right, with Julie Sue and Gene Sperling saying that they'll just wait on the sidelines in Washington, D.C., as the UAW and the big three automakers continue to hold discussions. They'll swoop in to Detroit at the necessary time. Now, on the other side, there's pre former President Donald Trump, a former reality TV star who does understand the optics, who doesn't uh, care as much about the responsibility of the infrastructure or inje injecting himself into that moment as well. And so you're seeing him kind of in some ways box Biden in because, again, we've seen like Bernie Sanders last month talk about the Democrats' problem with working class voters. Donald Trump has no qualms about swooping in and injecting himself into that argument. 
also really interesting to me. They were going to go, Gene Sperling and Julie Sutton, and then they, now they're not going to go, but Trump's going to go and he's going to skip the debate. And I think the Times had this really great look at, like, a number of the auto workers telling New York Times reporters that, like, they weren't so on board with Biden and him being the union guy. And when they actually dug into the data, not just the union bosses who often back Democrats, but the actual workers, in the last election, four in 10 backed Trump, right? And so the, the head of the AFL-CIO said the demographics of union members are the ones who've been trending away from Democrats. Yeah. For some time. And Trump is going for that. Well, look, th- this this is a problem for Democrats for decades, as you say, right? There's a delta between union leadership, which is, is lock, stock and barrel for Democrats and still flexes their muscle like they can deliver the votes. And, and the, the cultural sympathies of many members that say, you know what, I'm not going with yeah. that because they feel the frustrations that Donald Trump and a lot of populist conservatives do a very good job of tapping into and articulating. At the end of the day, though, I think it is a question of follow the money and who's going to actually back your, your interests. But, but remember, the story of our politics in recent times is cultural frustrations, Trump, no pun intended, economic interest. No, no. I mean, Sean Fain, who heads the UAW, quote, every fiber of our union is being poured into fighting the billionaire class mm-hmm. in an economy that enriches people like Donald Trump at the expense of workers. So... And there's the catch-22 in our politics. Right. It's also, and, and this gets to Mario's point, and, and then, Shelby, you've got some new reporting that I really want to get to um, for a key Republican primary. This is such a great window into mm-hmm. the split screen of this campaign, right? Mario lays it out where the Biden administration is trying for an outcome here, yep. and they're going to be quiet. They will have Zoom meetings with the two advisors. Right. They'll get there when they feel like it's important, but they've been talking to the UAW and Sean Fain, and they're, not, they're trying not to jam them in That's any right. way. Where Trump doesn't care. But he wants the public recognition of the fight and wants rank and file to believe him. Um, it's, this is the next 14 months. Also the next 14 months, or at least the next several months, the response from uh, anti-abortion activists to the Trump comments in the NBC interview. You have new reporting on that. I think it's fascinating because it took a couple of days and now it's starting to unfurl. Yeah, the floodgates have really opened with the situation. And I think it's quietly been brewing for months Um, the frustration that anti-abortion activists have with how Trump has kind of shifted his own messaging on the topic of abortion. And after the NBC interview where he said that Ron DeSantis's six-week abortion ban was terrible, um, they've really come at him. And the big theme that I've heard from these activists is that they've always kind of viewed Trump as transactional, as somebody who does something that is politically advantageous. But back in 2016, they bet on him and it was it ended up being successful. This time around, they're seeing that, you know, maybe Trump is starting to move to the left on some of the issues and they feel like he's abandoned their cause because he got Roe versus Wade overturned. He did all of these anti-abortion <clears throat> things last time around. And so he does not feel obligated to their cause this time around. And so they're really, really concerned about the possibility of another Trump presidency. Look, this is more evidence for one, A, why a lot of Trump, his support has been transactional on a lot of these traditional social issues. Um, But why the argument that that I've been making that you and I debate, which is that this is not over. Um, This is not over. It's definitionally not over. We're four months from voting. But there are a lot of coalitions that have been traditionally pretty powerful inside the Republican Party that don't feel like they have a champion yet. And they haven't coalesced behind an alternative to Donald Trump. I will say there's another side to the the successful accomplishment of overturning Roe v. Wade, which is Democrats keep winning local races. We don't pay a lot of attention to them. But that backlash is continuing to brew on the ground 
in state legislatures and local races. And that's a countervailing force that you got to take into account when you look at this election coming down the pike. Sure. Really interesting reporting. Shelby, thank you so much. Well, that same group that sued Harvard and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill over affirmative action now have their sights set on the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. What exactly they're alleging? We'll have more. Also this morning, federal charges have been filed after a one-year-old child overdosed at his New York City daycare ahead. The chilling details of how infants and toddlers were exposed to fentanyl. This morning, we're learning more about an altercation at the Patriots' Gillette Stadium in Massachusetts where a man died during the fourth quarter of Sunday night's game. The local district attorney's office says 53-year-old Dale Mooney of New Hampshire was pronounced dead after a medical incident. Now, a man who also attended that game says he witnessed a, quote, violent confrontation leading up to the fan's death, according to CNN affiliate WCVB. CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now with more... uh, Omar, we know there's an investigation ongoing. What do we know about what actually happened here? Yeah, so if you just look at what we know, this happened during the fourth quarter of the Dolphins and Patriots game. And as we understand, according to a witness, uh, Dale Mooney approached a group of fans on the 300 level. Um, it was around 11 o'clock is when police and fire responded to people, to someone in need of a medical emergency. And as you mentioned, it was, it was a witness that spoke to our affiliate WCVB uh, that said that there was some sort of violent confrontation leading up to what happened, and that is what's under investigation. But not long after that confrontation, it became immediately clear to this witness that something was very wrong. Take a listen. Throughout the night, there was definitely some back and forth. Kind of immediately, the way the guy slumped over, the whole mood changed. It was definitely, I think everybody around knew something was wrong, and we had just witnessed something we all didn't want to see. Now, we're not sure exactly at what point in the timeline of any sort of confrontation that happened that very well could have happened after. But right now, that, of course, the the cause of this, the autopsy results, we're still waiting to get to sort of give a little bit more clarity into what exactly happened here. And his wife told our affiliate WCVB he doesn't have any sort of medical condition that she knows of and that it takes a lot to get him angry. And so, again, that's also part of what we're trying to figure out here. But Dale Mooney... 53 years old. He was a 30-year season ticket holder uh, with the Patriots, lifelong Patriots fan, and uh, his family and others are just now trying to find some answers. Yeah, investigation ongoing. Omar, thank you. Poppy? All right, a federal lawsuit has just been filed against West Point over race-based admissions. This lawsuit comes from the same group that won that landmark case this term against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. That culminated with the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action in college admissions. The ruling did not, though, cover the country's military academies. Remember, they were actually exempt explicitly. Miguel Marquez joins us now. So this is the sort of the natural follow-on. And what this group is alleging, Students for Fair Admission, that by doing this, by using affirmative action, you're violating the Equal Protection Clause, right? Uh, essentially. That, that's the service academies, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, and specifically West Point, which they sued in federal court in New York. So this will probably work its way back to the Supreme Court. Keep in mind that universities across the country are still wrestling with that precedent-changing ruling from June, trying to figure out where their race-based admissions uh, are now. Uh, But it was Students for Fair Admissions uh, which brought this suit. Um, And in a quote, they say that West Point, instead of admitting future cadets based on objective metrics and leadership potential, West Point focuses on race. And they say that is wrong. The, the, the uh, 
racial makeup of the 2027 class for West Point is five point, uh, about 14% Asian. The U.S. population for Asians is 5.9%. So That's Asians are, are overrepresented there. Hispanics, about 11% for 2027 at West Point, 18.9% in the U.S. population, so lower. African Americans, about 10% for 2027. Uh, it's about 12.6% across the country, so it's a little bit lower. And the Native Americans are about 1%, both at West Point uh, and at the, um, uh, in the U.S. population. You mentioned uh, the, the, the carve-out, essentially, that the justices yeah. made. The Chief yeah. Ju- Justice uh, Robert. Roberts did that opinion. It was concurred by all the conservative justices. The, the liberal justices dissented very, very vociferously. Um, in that carve-out, uh, Robert said that the potentially, uh, it, that, the, that the service academies, that, that they potentially have distinct interests that the service academies yeah. may present. That's what I think is so interesting about the opinion, is there may be distinct interest in making sure that you have a diverse body of, of cadets. And I just wonder how West Point's responding. Well, so West Point isn't responding right now, but the U.S. Solicitor General during arguments in June did say that there was a specific interest, particularly given the Vietnam War, particularly yes. given the way that the U.S. military academies and the U.S. military has been far ahead on racial justice yeah. for decades now. There is a specific interest uh, for the military academies to have racial parity, to, to basically keep the troops uh, you know, from officer corps to the enlisted represented. It's going to be fascinating to watch that argument play in the courts fight. because it is different than what the Supreme Court decided. Miguel, yeah. thanks for you the great it. reporting. Appreciate it. Phil. Thanks, Poppy. In just a few hours, opening statements could begin in the trial for the officers who were charged in the death of Elijah McClain. We're going to take you live to Colorado with a preview. Plus, CNN's Fareed Zakaria sat down with the president of Iran after the release of five Americans who were wrongfully detained. The exclusive interview, that's ahead. I know relations between your government and the United States are still very strained, but does this uh, deal mean that you are able to uh, work with the United States government on issues of mutual interest? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. In just a few hours, a a jury is expected to be seated in the trial of two police officers charged in the death of Elijah McClain. The unarmed black massage therapist was confronted by the officers walking home from the store more than four years ago. Prosecutors say the officers put him in a chokehold and later sedated him after struggling to place handcuffs on him. Officers Randy Redima and Jason Rosenblatt are the first of five to face trial. CNN's Lucy Kavanoff is live for us in Denver. And Lucy, what are we expecting as this seems to start to kick into gear? Good morning, Phil. The death of 23-year-old Elijah McClain sparked outrage not just here in Colorado, but across the nation. Both of the defendants on trial today uh, face charges of manslaughter as well as criminally negligent homicide. Both men have pled not guilty. Uh, We are expecting the jury to be seated later this morning, followed by opening statements. 
Elijah McLean was walking home four years ago when he was approached by Aurora, Colorado police officers responding to a suspicious person 911 call. His death in 2019, after the police encounter, sparked community outrage in Colorado and beyond, prompting multiple investigations and calls for justice, and led the state to reform the department. Police body cam footage shows the sequence of events that August night. McLean was wearing a dark ski mask and was not under suspicion of any crime. Stop right there. Hey, stop right there. Stop. 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 I have a right to stop you because you're being suspicious. McLean can be heard in the recordings trying to explain himself. No, I am an introvert. Please respect the boundaries that I am speaking. The body cam footage then shows officers putting McLean in a chokehold, claiming he tried to grab one of their weapons. I'm so sorry. I have no gun. I don't do that stuff. I don't do any fighting. After paramedics arrived on scene, McLean was given ketamine, a powerful sedative. Both the chokehold and the drug have since been banned in Colorado. Five defendants are now facing charges. All have pleaded not guilty. And the road to the trial has been a long one. Prosecutors initially declined to file charges, but after continued protests, the Colorado governor appointed the attorney general as special prosecutor to investigate further. Our goal is to seek justice for Elijah McLean, for his family and friends, and for our state. The original 2019 autopsy report called McLean's manner and cause of death, quote, undetermined, but the autopsy was amended in 2021 and made public last year, citing complications from ketamine injection following forcible restraint as the cause of death. After the encounter, McLean suffered a heart attack while he was en route to the hospital. He never regained consciousness. Days later, he died. The outrage over his death led to calls for more transparency regarding police use of force in Aurora and beyond. But for McLean's mother, who spoke out last year about changes in Aurora's police department leadership, reforms have still not progressed far enough. They're just going backwards. They don't care about police reform. All they care about is controlling people that's not like them. And Phil, as you've pointed out, this is just the first of what will be three separate trials. Officer Nathan Woodyard, uh, who had placed McLean in that chokehold, is scheduled to be trialed next individually in mid-October. And the two paramedics were expecting their trial at the end of November. Phil? All right, Lucy Cavanaugh for us in Denver. Thank you. So this just in, 10 people were taken into custody overnight. This happened in Staten Island. They were blocking a bus carrying migrants seeking asylum to New York City. Those details after this. And today negotiators will head back to the table to potentially end the months-long writer's strike. We'll discuss that and the state of the actor's strike when actress and SAG-AFTRA member Taraji P. Henson joins us live in studio in our 8 o'clock hour. You don't want to miss this. Stay with us. McCarthy is working to keep his party together, but also to keep his job. They might be in the same galaxy, but they are on different planets. Hopefully some of my colleagues will see the light of day quickly. The former Trump aide says Trump told her to play dumb about boxes of classified documents. She was right outside the most important office in the world. I think it's incredibly damaging. That is textbook obstruction of justice. 
the Attorney General taking the hot seat. What Merrick Garland plans to tell lawmakers. They spent a lot of time protecting Democrats and a lot of time hunting Republicans. We do stand up on our side of the aisle for the rule of law. The illegal weaponization of the Department of Justice. Morning, this Good morning, everyone. It is a Wednesday. We're so glad you're with us. And it's a really particularly busy Wednesday in your old hometown. It is Groundhog Day. Also, <laughs> not literally, but it feels like that on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it really does. And Merrick Garland, by the way, is testifying. So here's where we begin. This morning, House Republicans at odds with each other, that's to say the least, uh, as America hurdles towards a government shutdown. Hear that? We saw the chaos on full display as Republican lawmakers failed to pass their own defense bill after five consecutive hardliners voted to kill it. It's a huge red flag as Speaker Kevin McCarthy struggles to get his conference under control with about 10 days left to prevent the government from shutting down. Right after the vote, a group of House Republicans held an impromptu news conference and slammed their own colleagues for derailing the defense bill. So our inability to bring this package to a floor vote because of these five individuals who decided to put their personal agendas ahead of the basic requirements of our troops is extremely upsetting to us. But they're confused and they just handed a win to the Chinese Communist Party as a result of this vote. Uh, and we're gonna do everything we can to keep folks at the table, to get people back in line. Now, the White House is now outlining the consequences of a potential shutdown and warning that it could undermine the U.S. economy and national security. We have team coverage this morning. Our Let's Science is at the White House for us, but I want to start with Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. And Lauren, I want to, I think it's important to distinguish here. The, the, the bill that failed yesterday, the procedural motion that went down yesterday, which by the way is extremely rare, was a defense spending bill. It was just for the Pentagon. Republicans traditionally like the Pentagon and defense. They have nothing moving when it comes to actually halting a government shutdown. Those are two separate things, but both equally hugely problematic. Yeah, Phil. In fact, there were really two issues with procedural votes yesterday. That defense bill that went down on the floor of the House of Representatives, exceedingly rare. But they also had to make a decision from leadership yesterday to pull a vote on a procedural uh, measure on the floor to advance the short-term spending bill. And that is where we stand today. That is where Republicans are still engaged in around-the-clock conversations, trying to find a way forward. And there was a marathon meeting all day yesterday in the office of Republican whip Tom Emmer. One of the Republicans who was in that meeting, Kelly Armstrong, told our colleague that it was really more of a therapy session as members were able to sort of get a lot off their chest, have a conversation about what they might need to do to move forward as one united Republican front. But it's not clear they're ever going to get there. And in part, it's because you have a number of hardliners who are not only opposed to moving forward with this negotiated one-month Republican stopgap spending measure, you also have a number of conservatives who are starting to make clear they may never get to yes on any short-term spending bill. And that is a problem for Kevin McCarthy because he has such a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. And if you zoom out a little bit and think about the bigger picture, we are still focusing on if Republicans can come together in one side of the Capitol. 
There is still no negotiation that is happening to avoid a government shutdown, even for a month, between Republican leaders in the House of Representatives and Democratic leaders in the Senate. And that is the negotiation that will ultimately matter if we are going to be avoiding a shutdown. So a lot of unanswered questions right now as Republicans are hoping to find a way forward. It's just not clear they're going to, Phil. And Arlette, the White House is hoping if they remind the American people what a government shutdown would actually mean to them, and by the way, our service members who defend this country, that that may have an impact and push things along. Yeah, Poppy, the White House is really seizing on the chaotic nature of these discussions amongst House Republicans, trying to paint them as engaging in extreme partisan politics. Something that we've heard consistently from the White House is that Republicans have been prioritizing issues like a potential impeachment inquiry, which the White House calls a political stunt, and also loading up a bill with items that would simply just not pass the Senate. Now, this morning, the White House is focusing on laying out what the consequences of a government shutdown would be, including further furloughing federal workers. There would be active duty military members who would be forced to work without pay. Also, air traffic controllers and TSA agents uh, that the White House argues could cause airport delays uh, down the road. There are also concerns that the FEMA disaster relief fund would be depleted. We've consistently heard from FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell that if Congress does not authorize the $16 billion request from the president, that they're going to run out of funds pretty quickly after those wildfires in Hawaii and the hurricane down in Florida. There's also concern about delay for infrastructure projects if reviews and permitting can't be completed. But one thing that the White House has consistently pointed to is their belief that House Republicans need to stick to that budget agreement that they brokered with the White House back in May. Now, so far, we haven't seen any direct involvement from President Biden as Republicans uh, are engaged in this chaotic nature up on Capitol Hill. But we will see whether that changes as they barrel closer to a potential shutdown. We'll watch closely. Arlette Lauren, thanks very much. Now we want to turn to the new reporting in the investigation into Donald Trump's alleged mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. ABC News and the New York Times are both reporting that a close aide to Trump has told investigators that Trump told her not to talk about the boxes of documents. Here's the exact line that she says Trump told her, quote, you don't know anything about the boxes. Now, this assistant is Molly Michael. This is not an unimportant person in Trump world. She worked closely with Trump in the White House and then followed him to work in his office at his Florida resort. She resigned last year. Now, according to reports, she also told investigators that Trump would write to-do lists on documents that were marked classified. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Um, thanks so much for being here. I, I want to start with something that Chris Christie said, because yeah. obviously former federal prosecutor brought a lot of cases, also uh, running against the former president, political and legal, always intertwined here. Take a listen. I mean, that is active witness tampering. That's active obstruction of justice. I mean, so if she's telling the truth then we have more evidence that will be presented at the time of trial. And this case um, will be tried. Um, and this is the guy that we want to make our nominee. Putting the political race aside, is Chris Christie right in terms of the implications of this? Yeah, if it's as reported, he absolutely is right. Uh, this is obstruction of justice, you know, knowing full well, as both Trump and Michael did, that she knew all about the boxes of documents, right? He says, you don't know anything about them as she's poised to go in and talk to investigators. That's pretty classic 
obstruction of justice. The question is, what do prosecutors do with this? I mean, she's obviously a valuable witness on the case that exists now, both on the side of the substantive document charges and the obstruction of justice cases they've charged it. Do they now add another obstruction of justice count as they move forward? That's interesting. Also, the question is, Chris, Chris, you'll note he said there, if she's telling the truth, there's no reason to believe that she's not. And I just want everyone to listen to Sarah Matthews, who was the deputy press secretary for Trump, explaining how crucial she is in terms of was in her role and how close in close proximity she was to then President Trump. Here's that. So this is someone he knew very well who would have had a lot of face time with the president. And they can't simply dismiss her, you know, as someone that he would uh, not be aware of or who wouldn't be in the know because she was quite literally sitting right outside the most important office in the world, someone who the president knew by name. And I think that makes her a very credible witness. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I mean, a, a couple things here. One, there's no intermediary to the statements that she it's allegedly has. Just directly Trump into her ear, right? We had the prior witness Tavares, who says that D. Oliveira, the, the co-defendant right. of Trump, came in and said, Trump told me this. This is directly. So that's really important. Secondly, she's really unimpeachable, right? She's not someone who went in and lied first, and now she's in trouble, and then she comes clean. She's someone who just was called in, wasn't about to lie for anyone and get herself in trouble. So she told the truth. Terrific witness for prosecutors. No, we should note the Trump campaign put out a statement saying that this was taken out of context. They don't have the full context. The leaks were illegal. Um, haven't responded directly, though. Uh, we'll have to wait and see on that. Uh, I do want to ask you, all eyes are going to be trained on Capitol Hill, not just because they're once again wandering their way into a box canyon of a government shutdown, uh, but also because Attorney General Merrick Garland will be testifying today, the first time since the Hunter Biden indictment, uh, Republicans since the Republicans launched the impeachment inquiry. Uh, it's striking in the excerpts that the Justice Department released of his opening statement. I want to read part of it to you. It says, I'm not the president's lawyer. I will also add, I'm not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and law wherever they lead, and that is what we do. The, the AG getting out in front of this hearing, releasing these excerpts and making that statement, why do you think he did it? Well, you can see why he's getting, at least for Garland, maybe a little testy, right? I mean, if anyone has demonstrated his independence from the White House and everyone else, it's Merrick Garland. I mean, you could even argue that He's been too laid back. It took them too long to focus on the true causes of the January 6th insurrection, you know, that he went too far in saying, sure, go after Hunter Biden for something that, frankly, no one else in the country would have been charged with. I mean, if anything, he's putting his thumb on the other side of the scale. So you can see why he's saying I've been as independent as I can possibly be, you know. If you're paying attention, you know that, and all of the rest of this is political. So I'm not surprised he's coming out swinging, again, for him. Merrick Garland swinging isn't swinging like other people might. Um, but, you know, good for him to try to put the facts out there about what's happened in front of the American people. It'll certainly be an interesting hearing uh, to watch. And for Rogers, thank you, as always. Thanks. All right, now I want to show you this new overnight. Several protesters were taken into police custody. This is from Staten Island, New York. And you see them blocking a bus carrying migrants seeking asylum in New York. The NYPD arrested 10 people. One person was arrested for assault. Nine others received a summons for disorderly conduct. New York City has become an epicenter of the migrant crisis since spring of 2022. The number of asylum seekers surpassed 100,000, with costs projected to run up to $12 billion in the coming years. As people line up in search of housing and other basic services. Now, the figure pointing between New York City's mayor, New York's governor, and President Biden and the Biden administration has been happening now for months. Adams at a town hall event earlier this month said he sees no end to this issue and said it was possible that it could, quote, destroy New York City. 
A high school band director tased and arrested by police for refusing to stop playing after a football game. <clears throat> this happened in Birmingham, Alabama. Coming up, the band director will join us live to describe firsthand what he experienced. Plus, new federal charges after a toddler at a New York City daycare overdosed on fentanyl and died. We'll have that. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Those are panicked screams after Birmingham police tased and arrested a high school band director. And we are going to talk to that band director live in just moments. But first, we told you about this yesterday morning. Police say they were clearing out the stadium at the end of a football game. This was last week when they noticed both schools' bands were still performing. According to Birmingham police, when asked to stop playing music in order to get people to leave the stadium, the hometown's band complied. But the visiting school's band director, Johnny Mims, had his band continue performing. A physical altercation then ensued, and they released this body cam video of the incident. A warning, some of this may be distressing to watch. Now, Mims was charged with disorderly conduct, harassment, and resisting arrest. The school he works for has placed him on administrative leave. Birmingham Police's Internal Affairs Division is now investigating. Joining us now is Johnny Mims, the band director, tased by police in that video, and his attorney, uh, Alabama State Representative Wandelin Gavon. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. I, I can't imagine what the last several days have been like for you. Uh, but, Johnny, on that front, I know you went to the hospital after this occurred. Mentally, physically... Where are you right now? How are you feeling? Uh, I'm still, uh, of course, grappling with the situation that uh, took place. Um, it's kind of been an ongoing uh, thing for me daily, just uh, you know, take, taking it one day at a time. Uh, as you uh, did explain, I did uh, get an opportunity to go and get checked. Uh, I was I had an opportunity to go yesterday and get a follow-up. And so um, um, I, I have a great uh, doctor that I've been working with to try to, you know, help me get, uh, you know, use of, uh, regular use of my arm because I was tased in the shoulder as well as the uh, lower uh, uh, torso area. And then uh, on my other side of my, you know, of course, I've used those. I use my shoulders for, of course, most of the things that I do. So mm -hmm. uh, mentally, of course, you could, you know, just hearing those screams from the video again and just, again, reaccounting everything. Uh, as an educator, of course, you know, you're always trying to figure out, um, you know, anything that happens, you're always going through that process again to see, you know, what you could have, um, you know, how you can uh, move forward on everything. And so uh, it's just been a day to day process. Um, it's something I'm still grappling with um, and still very, very concerned about uh, the students who had to witness, witness that situation. We do want to hear about the students in, in a moment. Um, I watched, you know, the video um, more than our viewers just saw. And it, it appears in the text on the screen says that you were tased three times throughout this. I do want to play for you what the police uh, are saying in terms of putting out this body camera video uh, because you hear multiple officers requesting for you to stop. So let's let's play that and I want your reaction. Get out of the paper. 
at the end they say you will go to jail and you say that's cool and give a thumbs up. Can you explain why you did not have your students stop playing? Uh, the students were already, of course, engaged in, uh, in the plane, as, uh, as you can hear what I'm saying there. I uh, communicated to the officers, that, hey, we're on the last part of the song. Uh, there's, a, of course, we, we call it a cadence point of a song where you, uh, the students know to go into the last part of the song to cut off. Again, I had students uh, in the stands, 100, and about 130 in the stands. Then I had 15 uh, students on the actual track. And so there's a coordination that must happen between those two entities of the band. And so it's not one of those things you just, you just cut the group off. In our case, because of the size of the band, we had to split the group up. And so part of the band is in front of me, and then the other part of the band is on the floor. And so uh, as I communicated with them, you know, we were at the end of the song. That, was, that would be the most appropriate sit- situation uh, to happen because those two groups are not together. Uh, the other band, if you look in the, um, in the footage on the other side, their entire band was up in the stand. So it's much easier for that director to get uh, total control of what's going on with the group while they're playing. And so that's, that's the reason why, again, you could see in there that I did communicate that. Um, and then, the, of course, you know, as, as a person, you're up and you're like, whoa, what do, what, what do I do? So you're caught off guard. You're confused about why uh, you know, the officer coming, you know, are directing the questions in a way that they are directing it towards me. And so, of course, that's going to cause some confusion for a person. And, you, and you know, so, and so my reaction was just to let them know, hey, we're, we're towards the end of the song. And as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the person up, I wanted to make sure they were aware that this would be the best thing for us to make sure we get to the end of the song so that way I can properly cut off uh, the band appropriately so that both groups that's in the stands and the other group that is on the floor would be able to know what's going on almost uh, at the same time. Uh, I do want to further understand, too, uh, by this time, towards, while we're getting towards the end of that song, uh, the lights were turned off. So that also further complicated the situation for me allowing me uh, to be able to uh, cut the band off. And you can see that. I'm trying to cue the group uh, to cut off. But at that time, of course, because I'm a, dark, a darker uh, person, it's very difficult for the students to see me. Wanda I, I want to ask you, uh, read what you've said and I think what you uh, have seen and what you've described over the course of the last several days related to the events that transpired. The police, uh, I believe, claim that... Uh, Johnny hit them, uh, swung at an officer when he stepped off the platform. It's hard to always kind of put everything together when you're looking at body cam footage or we're looking at different pieces of things. Is that an area of dispute right now? Or is there something the police have described that you think is either wholly inaccurate or doesn't tell the full story? It's an absolute lie and it's a fabrication by the Birmingham Police Department. I've seen multiple uh, angles of the footage. As a matter of fact, I just met with the city attorney on yesterday. And and unfortunately, what you all... I'm sorry? I I apologize for interrupting. Go ahead. I wanted to make sure we also had a statement. Please continue. I'm sorry. Uh, What you all have before you on uh, Monday, uh, what what was released... That was the police's, uh, the police department's first, uh, what they chose to release. But there are about four, actually maybe four or five other uh, pieces of body cam footage that they they chose not to release uh, initially because it really uh, depicts a different story. Uh, and I again state that is a it is there is a it, fabrication of the truth. 
And it is unfortunately that in this day and time that the police officers of this country, many of them, the first thing they say is that someone attacked them or they uh, thrust at them or they made some type of inappropriate gesture. I met with the city attorney yesterday. I started going through all of the video footage. My client not at one time attempted to assault in any fashion the Birmingham Police Department, and it's an ultimate uh, fabrication. And also there's footage, uh, and I think that has now been sent to you all, that some of the officers uh, that are Birmingham police officers that were there were amazed at the fact that my client was even tased. They were totally stunned, and they thought that it was totally inappropriate, the actions of the Birmingham Police Department. And regardless of how this may have started, there is nothing that happened that would have warranted my client being tased multiple times, even while on the ground, like some uh, total criminal at that point in front of 145 students at Minor High School. Those kids were traumatized. They have been uh in a, 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 to a, a, I think, distraught over this situation. This is an embarrassment to law enforcement. We've never witnessed this of, in that I can ever recall in this country that a educator would be tased in front of students by law enforcement. It's unacceptable. It is excessive. And not only that, we are going to be seeking also the information as to who cut the lights off at the school, as well as who the other security was uh, in attendance. And the other question I want answered is where were the administrators for both schools? Where was the principal for Minor High School and where was the principal for Jackson Olin High School? Those are questions that need to be asked. We will and answered. We will continue to follow this, ask those questions. Of course, we welcome the Birmingham police to join us and answer some of the questions. And I'm also sorry for, for interrupting you as well. It was not intentional. We really appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you so kindly. Thank you. Well, two people are now facing federal drug charges in connection with the overdose death of a one-year-old boy and the hospitalization of three other children at a daycare facility here in New York City. Police say the children were napping in close proximity to the powerful opioid fentanyl. Prosecutors say the two suspects, among others, were running a fentanyl distribution business out of the building in, which, uh, in an operation which, quote, shocked the conscience of the city. CNN's Shimon Prokopez is live with details. Uh, look, I think this story's been rattling in my brain since I first saw the headlines on it. What's actually happening here? Yeah, so right now the DEA is involved and the NYPD with federal prosecutors. They believe this was a drug trafficking ring that was being run out of this daycare. Perhaps this daycare used as some kind of front to hide what was going on there. And pretty significant in the sense that what they found there after this one-year-old who died, they believe because of an opiate overdose, this fentanyl that was in this daycare center somehow came into contact with the one-year-old and three other kids. And if it wasn't for the quick actions by emergency responders using Narcan to save the lives of these other three kids, we could perhaps be talking about a worst case scenario. So now the feds are involved. They've charged the two individuals, a daycare owner, Gray Mendez, who's 41, and another individual, uh, Carlisto Brito, uh, who was living inside this location with conspiracy to distribute narcotics and possession with intent to distribute narcotics. But the investigation is not over. In fact, the NYPD said they're going even further to see if this was some kind of global drug trafficking network out of the Dominican Republic. They're looking for the uh, daycare centers, the owner, 
her husband who fled the scene. She called him, text messaged him in the moments after all of this happened, even before she called 911. She's texting and calling her husband. He comes to the location as police are arriving and removes items filled inside a bag. They don't know what exactly it is, but obviously investigators believe it has to do with drug paraphernalia, other items that they found at the home. Uh, and so now they need to figure out exactly, was this part of some kind of bigger network? Uh, the three other children who were injured are doing okay. But if it wasn't for the really the quick action of those emergency responders who had to use this nasal spray, right, this Narcan, who would think that kids would need to be treated in such a way? And just, just to follow up, I mean, we're talking about a kilo of fentanyl, which the DEA and others have say can kill up to 500,000 people. I mean, this is enough drugs that you can sell to 500,000 people. It's a lot of drugs. Uh, it's certainly very deadly and dangerous, certainly to have in a daycare. It's horrifying as a parent, but also, like, what are you doing as a human being? Um, yeah. Please keep us posted on this great reporting, as always, Shimon. Thank you. Thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will head to Washington, D.C. after making his desperate plea for more aid at the United Nations. We must act united to defeat the aggressor and focus all our capabilities and energy on addressing these challenges. He is also facing some pushback from some Republicans. We'll be joined by Democratic Senator Chris Murphy about this fight for funding and much more right ahead. Of course, everybody who lost families It doesn't matter where you lost it, in New York, in the center of New York, or in Kramatorsk, it doesn't matter, you lost, and that's it. And you never will hear your children. Of course, when you lost your family, you hate Russians or another terrorists. The starkest of terms from Ukrainian's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, that was in an interview he did with our colleague Wolf Blitzer about how Russia's war is impacting Ukrainian civilians. Zelensky sat down with Wolf following his speech yesterday at the United Nations General Assembly. Next, Ukrainian leader heads to Washington, D.C. today, where he is expected to meet with President Biden and also visit Capitol Hill. His trip comes as additional aid for Ukraine is being held up. As part of the House Republicans' broader fight over funding the government, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he has questions for Zelensky over aid Ukraine has already received from the United States. Is Zelensky elected to Congress? Is he our president? I don't think I have to commit anything. I have questions for him. Where's the accountability and the money we already spent? What is the plan for victory? Joining us now, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He, of course, sits on the Foreign Relations Committee. He will attend an all-senators meeting with Zelensky tomorrow. Senator, good morning and, and thank you. It's not just Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans. It's, you know, senators like Mike Braun, Republican, quote, why should we be paying all the bills for something, especially in a powder keg area like that? We can't afford to do it in the long run. Senator Josh Hawley, we just need to level with our European allies and say we need you to take the lead in the conventional defense of Europe, will take the lead on China. Why are they wrong in your mind? 
Because this matters to the United States. It doesn't just matter to Europe. The United States has benefited from the post-World War II order in which big countries like Russia and China don't use their military might to invade smaller countries. That stability has allowed uh, American economic and political power to grow. So this isn't just a European problem. This is an American problem. And as we saw in World War I and World War II, when the United States takes the position at first that invasions of Europe are European problems, mm -hmm. um, they very quickly become American problems. And so we're learning from history by stopping this invasion early rather than letting Putin take all of Ukraine and then perhaps move further into Europe. So I just don't agree with my colleagues that, um, A, Europe can handle this by themselves. Uh, there are capabilities that only the United States has that we can transfer to Ukraine, nor do I agree that it isn't a priority for the United States. Ukraine isn't asking American soldiers to die uh, to protect Ukraine. They're just asking us to help pay some of the bills. Um, we're still paying less than half the bills for military support. And I think it's a wise investment. Are you, is it your belief now, 10 days out, Ukraine is part of the issue here, there are a whole host of issues, that we are headed, I know it's the other chamber, that we are headed toward a government shutdown, though? I mean, listening to the yeah. House of Representatives in the last week, I really worry that we are headed to a shutdown. They have no path to passing a continuing resolution with Republican votes. Right now, McCarthy doesn't seem to have any interest in doing a bipartisan uh, continuing resolution, which is really the only uh, continuing resolution that can pass. And just yesterday, they couldn't even move uh, the defense bill uh, to the floor, um, translating that they can't even get pay raises for the troops passed. So the House Republicans seem like a total chaotic mess right now. In the Senate, you know, we have bipartisan support for the appropriations bills, and we would have bipartisan support for a continuing resolution. But uh, the dysfunction of the House Republicans seems pretty cataclysmic right now. And I worry, unless they change course and decide to start cooperating with Democrats, that we are headed for okay. a really damaging damaging shutdown for this country. Uh, given your uh, position on, on uh, global affairs and your particular interest in Saudi Arabia and, and the United States, I do want to ask you, as the president, by the way, gets ready to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today, uh, what the New York Times is reporting this morning, quote, the United States is discussing the terms of a mutual defense treaty with Saudi Arabia that would resemble military pacts with Japan and South Korea. And Tom Friedman framed it interestingly this morning. He says Netanyahu has formed the most extreme government in Israel's history. And yet Biden's administration is considering forging a complex partnership with his coalition and Saudi Arabia. There are enormous potential benefits and risks for the United States. It is, is it your view, Senator, that the potential benefits are worth the risks of doing something like this? We'll all remember candidate Biden said he would make Saudi a pariah. So I think the United States should be in the room uh, to try to help facilitate an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel that normalizes relations between those two countries. It is good for the United States uh, if there is peace between the Gulf and in particular between Saudi Arabia and Israel. The question is, what price should the United States pay for that? And I would be very 
wary of committing the United States through a treaty to the mm -hmm. defense of Saudi Arabia. I will wait until I see all of the uh, aspects of this deal. I trust the Biden administration inherently when it comes to foreign policy, especially in this region that Biden knows so well. But um, this Saudi government you know, chopped up an American journalist. There's just recently reports that they've been executing and torturing immigrants as they cross the border. Mm -hmm. The question is, is this the kind of stable regime that we should commit uh, American blood to defending? I think that's going to be yeah. a really high bar for the administration to step over. But uh, all of the administration's allies, you know, are, are very interested in seeing the details of an agreement if it comes uh, to fruition. And we should note, just so people understand, the reporting is the U.S. and Saudi, if they agree to this, would pledge to provide military support if the other country is attacked in the region or on, on Saudi territory. But before you go, I'm really interested in your thoughts on, you know, we, the Biden administration is no longer sending people to Detroit to try to help reach an agreement with the United Auto Workers and the big three. Trump is going to go there on debate night instead of debating. Is it your view that President Biden should be there? I mean, he is the right self-proclaimed union guy, Union Joe, should, should he have a more forceful presence there when obviously Trump and the Republicans are trying to pick up these union votes? Uh, listen, I think all of us should just say one simple thing. We stand with the union. I, listen, obviously we want this strike to end as quickly as possible. But you know what? Sometimes you need to make a fight. I mean, these greedy corporate CEOs have been keeping worker pay down for way too long. You're talking about a 150% increase in CEO pay in the last 10 years when the minimum wage hasn't gone up at all. Um, this is a really important fight, not just for the auto workers, but for workers all around this country. And so I, I think everybody uh, in the Democratic Party should be just making it clear that we stand with the workers. The administration has to play a unique role to try to help end this mm -hmm. crisis. But uh, I think we all should just make it clear that the workers are right. Uh, the, the, the company is wrong. Um, and when right and wrong is at stake, you know, on I, all I, their demands, Senator, on all their demands, four day work week included. They're, they're listen, they're 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 asking for a pay increase that is identical to what uh, the CEO has gotten. Mm -hmm. And so if the CEO doesn't want to pay the workers a 9% increase every year, then the CEO shouldn't be taking 10% uh, pay increases every year. Senator Chris Murphy, thanks very much. Well, this morning, President Biden will meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly. Papu was just asking about that relationship and where it stands, how the president will address Netanyahu's controversial judicial reform plan. That's ahead. And after a long struggle to find the life-saving drugs for her nine-year-old daughter with cancer, this champion for change launched an organization with a mission to end drug shortages entirely. Her amazing story, next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That's time for my favorite part, Poppy's favorite part, my too, favorite I think, part. Uh, of every day this week. Champions for Change, all this week, we are bringing you stories about everyday people who are making big changes and lifting humanity up. People like Laura Bray. She fought to get life-saving medicine for her daughter, and now she's striving to change the American pharmaceutical business completely. Dr. Sanjay Gupta has more on this amazing champion for change. We're lucky enough to be joined by him in studio. Can't wait to see this. Good morning, guys. Good morning. You know, we all have kids, and, and imagine that you get a terrible diagnosis for one of your children, and you're told this is the medication that is necessary to help them, to save them. 
but that medication is in shortage. I mean, that, that happens all the time in this country. Cancer meds are likely to go into shortage. What do you do? I mean, it's, I think it's a part of the DNA of all of our champions to sort of take on big establishments. But if it's the entire healthcare industry, it can be a real challenge. Here's what Laura Bray did. Four years ago, my husband Mike and I were sitting in a hospital room when our child Abby was diagnosed with leukemia. I think anybody who's been in a life-threatening diagnosis, you know, will remember those moments. We go in, she's gonna be able to have our chemos, but she's not gonna have Irwin A's today. How come? It's on shortage. Abby is clever, nothing gets past her. And she just said, what does this mean? Does this mean I die? She asked you that question. Yeah, it's hard enough that my nine-year-old had to contemplate her mortality when she's diagnosed with cancer and also then wonder if she was going to survive because not enough drug was made. What she did next makes her a true champion for change. She put together a consortium of friends and family and they essentially created a phone bank calling more than 220 children's hospitals around the country and asking all of them, did they have the medication that could save Abby? Finally, someone said yes. It was a relief and a release of all the stress. And then I felt tremendous guilt. And I was haunted by the knowledge that somewhere in the country, some other mom and child was going to be going through the same hopeless conversation. Hey, this is Laura. We launched Angels for Change and almost immediately people began to call. So right now we're in a 10-year high for drug shortages. There's more than 300 essential medicine shortages. There's four key reasons why there's shortage. The lower the price medicine, the more likely it is to be in shortage. The more complicated the medicine, if there's a history of a QA event, if all of it is made by one supplier or one area of the world, it's more likely to be in shortage. I think we've gotten so used to thinking about things like Amazon. They can anticipate when you're running out of toilet paper, when you're running out of dog food. You think the same thing would happen with life-saving medications, but that's not the case. The entire supply chain has to be engaged. So I thought, what would it look like to partner with the manufacturer and use prediction? How do you get them? She calls it Project Protect, anticipating which drugs could go into shortage and producing them with other companies before it's too late. Their first effort, a $100,000 grant to the for-profit Stack Pharmaceutical to manufacture two specific drugs. Potassium chloride and sodium chloride, which newborns, NICU patients, PICU patients need to survive. It's like salt and pepper. You never think you're gonna run out of those very simple things. Well, don't take our supply chain for granted. Jared Milton oversees all pharmacy and clinical services at Children's Hospital Colorado. What if Project Protect didn't exist? What would have happened in that situation? I shudder to think about what we would have had to do. Potassium chloride, one of the first drugs. So you're able to anticipate this shortage, basically at risk, create the medications, and they did go into shortage. They did go into shortage. And more than 700,000 treatments were accessed. And what we know- 700,000 treatments? <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. It is incredible. 
When you see this now, Laura, you see this coming off the line, so to speak, what's that like for you? What I see here is each one of those that's being filled up, seven to nine NICU babies that are gonna get fed today. How is Abby doing it? She's officially a survivor. She's doing great. She's a very normal, typical, bright, clever, fierce 13-year-old. I gotta tell you, we've been reporting on drug shortages for a long time. I had no idea how bad it was. 300 drugs were in shortage at the end of 2022. Average shortage lasts about a year and a half. And for some reason, children's cancer meds are usually at the top of the list. They were able to figure it out, Laura, and this is now her life's work. And like you heard, Abby's doing great, but this is a problem. I mean, the policymakers have not been able to address this problem, so private citizens have taken it upon themselves. Remarkable, private citizens. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, great piece. What Thank you so much. And please be sure to tune in Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern for Champions for Change, the whole one-hour special. You won't want to miss it. That was wonderful. President Biden calling on world leaders to better regulate artificial intelligence. Are we too late to this? We have one key AI expert with us ahead. And Attorney General Merrick Garland just hours away from publicly testifying in front of Congress how he plans to defend the Justice Department. That's ahead. Welcome back. As Congress works to confront the rapid evolution of artificial intelligence, President Biden is calling on world leaders to take steps to ensure the technology is used for good. We must also forge new partnerships, confront new challenges. Emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence hold both enormous potential and enormous peril. We need to be sure they're used as tools of opportunity not as weapons of, of oppression. Our next guest just released a book that is getting a lot of acclaim and a lot of attention, The Coming Wave Technology Power in the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma. He writes, quote, we urgently need watertight answers for how the coming wave can be controlled and contained, how the safeguards and affordances of democratic nation states can be maintained. But right now, no one has such a plan. We're happy to be joined at the table this morning by Mustafa Suleiman. He is the co-founder the CEO of Inflection AI, one of the world's pioneering AI entrepreneurs. You also led some of this work at Google. You know this inside and out. We're, we're so glad you're here. Um, your overall premise in this is essentially we have to make sure, not as America, as a world, that this ends well. It sounds simple, but that's, that's why you're doing this. Yeah, I think the most important thing is that we remember there are huge benefits to come from this. So we shouldn't panic. I mean, all technologies that are new initially feel a little bit scary, like aircraft felt really scary, cars felt scary. And over the years, we did a pretty good job of regulating them. I mean, cars, for example, have all kinds of regulations on roads, emissions, seatbelts, airbags. And it just takes time to kind of wrap our heads around the consequences and how to reduce the risks. I think what's so striking is the upsides are, I think, significant, tremendous, and I think people acknowledge them. The downsides are catastrophic. Huge, yeah. Um, and you, you focus on the idea of containment. And I want to read something. Your definition in the book is the overarching ability to control, limit, and potentially, if need be, close down technologies at any stage of their development uh, or deployment. That's a problem at this point, which is at kind of at the crux of your thesis here. Why? This is a different moment in the history of invention, right? So for the last few centuries, in fact, for as long as humans have been alive, the great challenge has been in unleashing the power of technologies. We've been trying to invent things in order to make our lives 
happier and healthier, more, more, more efficient, cheaper. In the next few decades, we're going to have the flip side of that challenge, which is actually trying to contain the power that we've unleashed and making sure that it always works for us. So one of the questions is how you do that. And one of the suggestions you make is to literally manufacture the chips that can do this processing in one plant. And you say in Taiwan, for example, and that obviously set alarm bells off in my head because I thought about China. So is that the only way you can do it? And then what about the risks of something like China if you do it in Taiwan? Well, the reality is today, almost all of the AI models that are built in the world are trained on a single type of chip yeah. made by NVIDIA, yeah. which is an American company. But they manufacture their chips in Taiwan, TSMC, who then use a single supplier, ASML, in the Netherlands to produce their equipment. And so that chain is really good when it comes to containment because there are choke points that we can use to monitor who has access to these chips, what they're being used for, and how they can be regulated. And that's actually a sign to be optimistic because it can be controlled. Uh, the amount of times AI came up during the UN General Assembly speeches was almost jarring to some degree. These are very important speeches that every word, I think, is very calibrated. You heard it from President Biden, but you also heard uh, from President Zelensky mentioning it. And in your book, you note that President Vladimir Putin believes the, the leader in AI will become essentially the ruler of the world. Listen to what Zelensky said uh, about AI yesterday. We see the war of drones. We know the possible effects of spreading the war into the cyberspace. The artificial intelligence could be trained to combat well before it would learn to help the humanity. There is a clear race between the U.S. Defense Department and every other kind of uh, defense operation uh, around the world. What are the near-term risks related to what Zelensky is talking about? AI is essentially a proliferation of power, right? So the ability to have influence, whether on the battlefield or in education and healthcare is now going to get easier and cheaper. So many, many people will get access. And that's quite different to technologies of the past. The challenge when it comes to regulation is making sure that our adversaries, you know, play by the rules. And that's difficult when, you know, they're obviously facing real challenges on their own battle line of, the, of their own. And that's quite different to the, the challenge that we experience. It's a fascinating read. You also talk about the good things that it can do. Thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. Appreciate it. And CNN This Morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. So glad you're with us on this Wednesday. Let's get started with five things to know. In just hours, Attorney General Merrick Garland will testify publicly in front of the House Judiciary Committee. What we've just learned is that he plans to tell lawmakers accusing him of weaponizing the Justice Department. We are just 10 days away from a potential government shutdown and infighting within the Republican Party is threatening hopes for any deal. We'll check in on that. All eyes on the Federal Reserve today. Officials there set to decide whether to keep the pause or raise interest rates. The Fed will also release a fresh set of economic projections. And Iran's president sitting down with CNN's Fareed Zakaria. In an exclusive interview, we'll show you his response to the five Americans freed this week and the $6 billion in unfrozen assets that were part of the deal. And striking writers and the heads of Hollywood studios get back to the negotiating table today, hoping to iron out a new contract after more than Four months without a deal. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now. The U.S. government will run out of money September 30th. What day is today? It's what? the 20th. It's the 20th. That's not, that's not a lot of time. 10 days. Next Sunday. Only 10 days from now. 
Uh, that is, unless Congress can get its act together and pass a bill, at least on the stopgap uh, side of things, to keep the lights on. But infighting among House Republicans, that has certainly stalled the process. This is not uh, conservative republicanism. This is stupidity. Uh, the idea that we're going to shut the government down uh, when we don't control the Senate, we don't control the White House, it's a clown show. I offer to help, but ultimately it's a decision of a leader if leaders want to lead or not. I don't know whether we'll have the votes or not, because I've got a lot of conservative friends who like to beat their chest and thump around going, oh, this isn't pure enough. Joining us now is Republican Congressman from California, David Valadeo. He's a member of the House Appropriations and Budget Committee. So he's been in the thick of the spending process throughout the course of this year. Certainly the deadline is approaching. Um, sir, you're not considered a firebrand. You're not considered a, a show horse type on Capitol Hill. As you look at things right now behind the scenes, uh, is there going to be a shutdown in 10 days? Well, we really hope not. Um, obviously, there's a lot of us who are working behind the scenes to try to find a way to make this uh, uh, get get through. Uh, but as you all saw yesterday, there was uh, about five members that voted against their party. And uh, sadly, we're getting closer and closer to that day. You know, to that point, you, you said something you were quoted earlier this week where you were talking about the appropriations process, the committee and the work that they've done. And they basically made the point they're not even willing to support a defense appropriations bill. Uh, that's supposed to be the easy one. And to that point, did you ever think you'd be in a place where Republicans wouldn't be able to coalesce behind a Republican defense spending bill? No, the, this one is a, a totally new one for us. And uh, obviously, it's frustrating for all of us. Uh, I think a lot of that frustration has filtered out. I know there was a lot behind closed doors, but certainly we've heard some publicly. Uh, your colleague, uh, Congressman Mike Lawler, has been uh, very clear about his views. But I want to play. You heard him earlier. I want to play something else he said. Listen. This is not uh, conservative republicanism. This is stupidity. Uh, the idea that we're going to shut the government down uh, when we don't control the Senate, we don't control the White House. These people can't define a win. They don't know how to take yes for an answer. Uh, it's a clown show. You keep running lunatics, you're going to be in this position. You're not known to be... Uh, as fiery in, in, in how you describe your colleagues. But to that point, do you agree? Is his assessment kind of spot on in the reality right now? No, the reality is I think there's some members that probably will never, ever get to a yes. And I think we went into that knowing that. Uh, but we have to go through the motions. We have to try to pass the bills. And uh, obviously, they keep talking about continuing to move appropriations bills. But the same people who are saying that are the ones voting against the rule to bring the appropriations bills to the floor. And if we can't move appropriations bills to the floor, we have no other option. And uh, it's putting us in a position where, as the day uh, gets closer, we're going to have to start working across the aisle and finding uh, some folks that are, are willing to support um, any sort of funding mechanism so that we don't hurt uh, our military, we don't hurt uh, the American people. And I think it's something that's got a lot of us really, really frustrated right now. Uh, to that point, there's been some reporting, my colleagues Melanie Zanona and Manu Raju reporting that there have been discussions, some quiet discussions between Republicans and Democrats about whether or not to coalesce or if there's a pathway to coalesce now before going through kind of the six or seven more motions you would need to go through to get to that point. Um, are you a part of those conversations? Do you think something like that would work? Uh, I do believe it could work. Um, it just depends on, on what's on the table, what's being asked for. Um, obviously, uh, we're at $33 trillion in debt right now, and spending is a big deal for a lot of us at home, and it's something that we want to try to be as responsible as we possibly can on. Uh, but again, when you can't get those five 
remaining five out of the 217 that voted yesterday, um, five of them voted against us, voted against our military, and it's kind of left us in a position where we're going to have to start negotiating uh, a little earlier with the other side than we expected. Are you worried, uh, are you concerned about Speaker McCarthy's job at this point? You've supported him. No, obviously I'm a big supporter of uh, the Speaker. I think he's done a great job. I don't believe anyone could have done better. Uh, what's being asked of him is something that's just not attainable. And no matter what he does, uh, there's going to be criticism. The problem is that there's such a small majority that they're in a position where they can uh, play the types of games that you see yesterday. I mean, dropping a uh, piece of the legislation on the bathroom countertop. I mean, these are just childish games. And the reality is we have to, to govern. And for Republicans to be successful and get our priorities forward, funding our military, making sure that we're responsible with taxpayer dollars, making sure that we do everything we need to do, that we promised that our constituents we would do, um, we have to pass bills. And just voting no is not how you do that. Uh, one more before I let you go. Um, you, you've long been a frontline member. You've won races. You've lost races. So all of your races have been tough uh, with a lot of spending on both sides from outside uh, and on your campaign. You have supported the impeachment inquiry, the launch of the impeachment inquiry. Are you concerned about what that will do to you politically, given kind of the race, the, tens, the races you tend to end up in? So no matter what I do, I'm going to get attacked. Uh, so worrying about what attacks are going to come from the left or the right, the reality is I, I can't focus on that. Um, the races that, uh, that I've run and won and lost, I mean, obviously they're frustrating, they're, they're hard to go through. Uh, but as I've proven before, I'm not afraid to make tough decisions, even when it's against my own party. Uh, but obviously what we see going on in the White House and some of the situations with his son are extremely concerning. And, and I think the reality is, is I think the American people have to have trust in their elected leadership. And this might be part of the process to getting to that point where we can actually trust our leadership. And uh, right now, Joe Biden is the one under the spotlight, and I think it's deservedly so. I think you guys are under the spotlight, too, at least for the next 10 days as well. Congressman David Valdeo, we appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me. In fact, there's a clock monitoring we have a clock. them the under clock. the spotlight. We don't have the clock. <laughs> House Republicans are getting their chance to question Attorney Love the General. Clock, I know you do, Mayor Garland, on live television. That's going to happen in just two hours from now, where Gar Garland will testify before the House Judiciary Committee. We're expecting him to forcefully rebuke his Republican critics who have accused him of weaponizing and politicizing the Justice Department. CNN has obtained excerpts of what the attorney general will say in his opening remarks. He will tell the committee that the Justice Department's, quote, job is not to take orders from the president, from Congress or from anyone else about who or what to criminally investigate. Melanie Zanona is live on Capitol Hill. Good morning. Phil and I have been talking all morning about the fact that I mean, to put this out there, you often get, you know, prepared remarks, but to put these sentences out there now is sort of a pre-buttle to what he knows is coming. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We are expecting a very forceful defense of the DOJ and its independence. And that is because Garland is going to be facing some of his toughest, toughest Republican critics on that committee. Some of them have called to impeach Merrick Garland. Some of them are threatening to defund the agency. So it is a really crucial moment for both Garland and the DOJ. I want to read you a little bit more from Garland's opening statement. Here's more of what he is expected to say when he goes before the committee today. As the president himself has said, and I reaffirm here today, I am not the president's lawyer. I will also add that I am not Congress's prosecutor. The Justice Department works for the American people. Our job is to follow the facts and the law wherever they lead, and that is what we do. 
Now, Garland is not expected to say much, if anything, about the ongoing criminal investigations into Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, or into President, former President Donald Trump, because those are active investigations. And that is likely going to infuriate some Republicans on the panel. They really want to grill Garland, especially about the Hunter Biden criminal case. That has become central to their impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. And some of the questions they have, they want to know about the appointment of David Weiss as special counsel. They want to know about the now defunct plea deal. And they also are going to ask him about this testimony from these IRS whistleblowers who have claimed that the DOJ mishandled and politicized that case. So we are expecting a lot of heat and potentially a lot of fireworks later today, guys. I think, Melanie, you had the line of the day yesterday about House Republicans. They may be in the same galaxy, but not on the same yeah. That, the that same applies planet. to quite a few issues, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks for the reporting. Pennsylvania's Governor Josh Shapiro has just made it easier for people in his state to vote. He's going to join us to explain why. He's also going to respond to Republican critics who don't like how he did it. That's ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, there's some very big news in voting rights in a very key swing state. Pennsylvania's governor has just announced his state will now automatically register eligible residents to vote when they get a new state-issued ID or driver's license. Now, 23 other states plus Washington, D.C. have some form of automatic voter registration, but few of them are likely to play as pivotal a role in the next presidential election as Pennsylvania. Joining us now is Pennsylvania's governor, Josh Shapiro. Governor, we appreciate your time. I kind of want to dig in on the implementation of all of this in a minute. But one of the primary criticisms we heard yesterday when this was announced uh, from Republicans in, in uh, state legislature was, why didn't you go through them? Why didn't you go through a legislative process, work with the other side on this? Why move forward on your own? What's your response to that? Well, let's be clear about something. I've been very open um, during my campaign and my time as governor about my belief that we should be an automatic voter registration state. We worked on the process. I'm well within my legal authority. And we put out a process that is secure and safe. It goes through our DMV process, which already includes safeguards to ensure that the person registering to vote is eligible to vote. This is an important way to expand voter participation, which I think in turn strengthens our democracy. I'm firmly on the side of promoting and protecting our democracy. If there are those that want to make it harder for people to vote, then they're going to have to account to that. But the bottom line is I'm well within my legal authority. This is good for our democracy, good for voter participation. You mentioned what the DMV or what checks there are, right, from the DMV, et cetera. I just was wondering if you could please respond directly to Stephen Miller, former Donald Trump aide, who, who tweeted this. I can promise you there will be no citizenship verification. Just want to give you a chance to respond directly to that. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm not going to respond to Stephen Miller. That guy's a dope who can't tell the yeah, truth. Yeah, I'm not asking you Here's about Stephen Miller, Governor, but just, just about what he raises, because I think he raises a question others may raise. So just to the to the substance of what he said. Right. Right. Well, he doesn't raise any substance. Here is the actual substance. When you go to get a driver's license, when you go to renew your driver's license, you have to bring identifying documents mm -hmm. um, in order to be able to secure that driver's license. The same documents that are required in order to be able to register to vote. 
we're relying on a system that already has safeguards built into it to allow someone to be automatically registered to vote. If you choose not to register to vote, if you want to opt out, that's perfectly fine. But we think we need to make it easier for eligible voters to participate in our democracy. And that's exactly what our system does here. Listen, Poppy, I went to court more than 40 times to defeat people like Stephen Miller and others who tried to thwart the will of the people here in Pennsylvania, who made up all kinds of ridiculous claims after the 2020 election. And I won every single time in court and defended the will of the people here in Pennsylvania, defended the right to vote. And here in Pennsylvania, we value our freedom, we value our democracy, and voting is central to that. And now it's easier for eligible voters to have their yeah. voices heard here in the Commonwealth. And I think that's why it's important for people to hear from you, all the checks that are that yeah. are there. It's also, it brings up something I've been thinking about when you saw the response to this yeah. um, and from who was responding. The experience you had uh, back in 2020 and obviously uh, and running in 2022, the concern that this just gives feeds kind of new threads for the uh, same people who questioned the results in 2020. Now they can say, hey, look, they did this on their own. He did it unilaterally. This was all to kind of, I don't know, get votes to rig yeah. the election. Hey, listen. And I understand guys, you're like, stipulating don't, that that should not don't. gauge how you operate as governor. However, it is simply a reality of the time we live in as the response to the last 24 hours has shown. Yeah, I think, Phil, respectfully, I think you're just giving their lies too much oxygen. Here's what I know happened in Pennsylvania. Not only did I defeat them in court 40 times, not only did we prove that many of their lawyers lied in court and their licenses were stripped away from them because they lied, including Rudy Giuliani, but I put together a coalition of Democrats, Republicans, and independents in the 2022 election who said no to extremism, no to lies, and elected me the governor because they wanted me to be able to ensure the continuation of free and fair, safe and secure elections here in the Commonwealth. This builds on that work we've done. Voter participation is central to our democracy. And those who are standing up trying to make it harder for people to vote, that's anti-democratic, that's anti-freedom, and that is not the way we do things here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. I wanna turn the issue to the, the ongoing strike that could get a lot bigger, the UAW striking against all three big automakers. We just had Senator Chris Murphy on, who said, you know, we as Democrats should all stand with all the demands, he, he essentially said, of, of the auto workers. One of those, as you know, Governor, is a four-day work week, right? Electric vehicles, AI, technology should make some of this work faster to accomplish. I thought Chris Christie's response to that was notable, and I just want your reaction. Here it is. And I think it's going to wind up turning Americans off. Everybody would love to be able to get paid for when they don't work. Um, but in this instance, um, that's not what it should be. Bernie Sanders, though, says, you know, if the bosses are going to benefit from this better technology, the workers should, too. They should have more time with their families, more time at home. What do you think? Well, look, I stand with the striking UAW workers. Um, they deserve to share in these record profits that the executives are taking home. I think what we have seen is just a, a, a greater 
gap between what the executives are making in companies and what the workers who are putting the, the product and the services out on the field are earning. We need to shrink that gap. And I stand with the UAW striking workers. They deserve better than what they're getting, or at least what I've read has been proposed on the table uh, for them. So I stand with them uh, and I'm hopeful that the two sides will continue uh, to have meaningful dialogue, that that gap will close and that going forward, UAW workers will be able to share in these record profits. All right, Governor jo Josh Shapiro of Pennsylvania laid a lot of things out during your campaign, delivering on those things uh, on several fronts over the course of your first number of months in office. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. Well, coming up, Fareed Zakaria's exclusive interview with Iran's president, how he responded to the release of five American prisoners and the $6 billion that were unfrozen as part of that deal. Next. All right, a CNN exclusive interview to bring you this morning. Our Fareed Zakaria sat down with Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi on the sidelines of the United Nations General Assembly. Here is part of that interview. Let me start by asking you about this uh, prisoner release that took place. I know relations between your government and the United States are still very strained, but does this uh, deal mean that you are able to uh, work with the United States government on issues of mutual interest? In the name of the Creator, the most compassionate, the most merciful, praise beyond to God, the Sovereign of the world, and many blessings. The issue of exchange of prisoners, that is the, at the core of your question, we did something that was prompted by humanitarian motives and those individuals who were imprisoned in the United States whom up to the point that we were informed our information indicated that they were unjustly imprisoned but the folks who were imprisoned in Iran uh, they had committed crimes and their Complaints had gone through the legal system, and they were condemned. And there was an opportunity for this exchange to take place. And this exchange was, as I said, prompted by purely humanitarian motives. And I do think that the accomplishment was something that led to the happiness of the families of the prisoners, as well as uh, having been able to show the true face of our humanitarian motives and efforts. As you know, the U.S. government uh, says that the people in Iran were unjustly arrested and imprisoned. Um, but there was also a piece of this deal, which was the release of several billion dollars of, uh, of, uh, of money, uh, which has been earmarked to be used only for humanitarian reasons. Uh, it is being monitored from Qatar. Will Iran abide by that part of the agreement and use that money only for humanitarian reasons? Well, you see, these funds belong to the people of Iran. Up to now, they were unjustly and unfairly blocked. These were funds 
belonging to the Iranian nation. Naturally, when these funds come back, they will have to be spent towards the needs that address, towards objectives that address the needs of the Iranian people. And we will certainly uh, keep to the core of our belief that the objective is to, is to spend those funds to respond to the needs of the Iranian people. Quite an interview, and certainly the timing couldn't be better. Fried Zakaria joins us now. Fried, good morning. Can we start on the last point there? Because that has been the point of the most criticism of this deal, is the, the money that is now freed up, Iran's money, for it to use. What did you make of his answer? Was it clear to you? I think he was trying as hard as possible to kind of assert Iran's sovereignty and its ability to do whatever he wanted with it. Uh, I think if the clip had run a little longer, you'd see at the end of it, he says, of course, we always honor our agreements. Mm. So there was a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, uh, an indirect way of saying that they would, in fact, keep to the deal. The deal is very tightly structured. Uh, the money goes drip by drip. And if they do not... Uh, satisfy the, uh, you know, the monitors that it is being spent on humanitarian uh, issues, uh, the money stops flowing. So I think, I think they have no option but to, uh, but to follow the, uh, the agreement. Fried, it's been striking the last several days. U.S. officials have been so quick and so unequivocal to say uh, this does not change anything about the broader relationship between the two countries, which is essentially non-existent at this point. As a longtime observer, and after this conversation, this lengthy interview, you think that's accurate? I do think it's accurate. Um, it was a very tough interview in the sense that uh, I certainly asked him what I thought were difficult questions, but he he responded very bluntly about you know, what he sees as America's hege hegemonic designs, hegemonic designs in the Middle East. And, you know, it had it had a lot of the fire and brimstone uh, of, uh, you know, the old Iranian hardliners, which is what he is. Remember, Raisi came to power uh, after the Iran deal collapsed when Trump pulled out of it. And in the election, the, the uh more moderate wing of the party that had uh, of the regime that had come to power and uh, negotiated the deal was discredited. And the hardliners who Raisi had always opposed the Iran nuclear deal. It's those people who were empowered by the by Trump pulling out of the deal. And turns out they are pretty tough hardliners. <laughs> Uh, Fried, I can't wait to see the rest of the interview. Everyone can watch it on your show Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Eastern here. But before we go, I do want to push ahead to today, the meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu on the sidelines of UNGA. And that in the context also of this New York Times reporting about potential agreement, mutual defense agreement between Saudi and the United States. Tom Friedman put it this way in his column um, talking about Bibi. He has formed the most extreme government in Israel's history, and yet your administration, this is speaking to Biden, is considering forging a complex partnership with his coalition, Saudi Arabia. There are enormous potential benefits and risks for the United States. Can you, can you lay out those benefits and risks? Sure. Look, the benefits are, are, are clear. The United States would be able to broker something that actually diffuses one of the central points of tension in the Middle East, uh, and that is the rivalry 
uh, and the hostility between Israel and the Arab states. If Saudi Arabia normalizes, uh, it is, you know, really the, the, at this point, the leading uh, Arab state in the, in the world. It is the richest Arab state in the world. It is custodian of the two great uh, uh, holy sites of, of Islam. So for all those reasons, it would be a, a huge symbolic deal, and it would also be, uh, in many practical ways, a big deal, because Saudi Arabia is vast. And the, if trade between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, started to, uh, to boom, that completely changes the dynamic of, uh, of what's going on in the Middle East. So that it, it also puts Saudi Arabia in the camp, along with the UAE and Qatar and Israel, as a kind of anti-Iranian uh, block in the Middle East. The, the, the dangers of this is the United States would be committing itself to the defense of a country that is not a liberal democracy, that is not in Europe or Asia, which it regards as its two principal uh, areas of, uh, of influ interest and influence in what for the last 25 years has been regarded as an unstable, troubled part of the world where the United States is actually trying to uh, withdraw its military presence. You know, if you remember, Obama uh, began the pivot to Asia. Uh, but the truth is, almost all administrations for the last four have been trying this pivot to Asia. Mm -hmm. And it puts the United States more deeply and commits it more deeply. And I think what Tom Friedman was saying is, look, if you're going to do something like that, make sure you're getting something big. And uh, he points out the issue that still remains completely unresolved and that Bibi Netanyahu seems to show no desire to solve is the Palestinian issue. Right. Five, six million Palestinians living without a country, without a vote. And what are you going to do about that? And what are your intentions on that issue? And uh, his argument is that Bibi Netanyahu, because he's catering to a very extreme coalition, uh, has no intention of moving for any kind of resolution uh, other than just continued yeah. occupation. Yeah. And the way he ends the column, I think, suggesting what Biden say to Netanyahu, quote, Bibi, you're out of focus for the American people. We need to know who are you now is just fascinating and gets to the crux of it. Thank you, Free. Congrats on the interview. A large crowd gathering in Staten Island overnight protesting New York's handling of the migrant crisis. Police say 10 people were arrested. The details on that ahead. Also coming up, a look at where things stand with the Republican presidential primary. Voters from New Hampshire. I don't think a politician will ever understand what I do for work unless they come on the boat with me and then me they'll understand. Any of them ever offer to come on the boat? <laughs> no, no. Well, new this morning, several protesters were taken into police custody on Staten Island for blocking a bus carrying migrants seeking asylum in New York. The NYPD arrested 10 people, one person for assault, and nine others received a summons for disorderly conduct. Now, just moments ago, New York City Mayor Eric Adams addressed the incident, saying the protesters were, quote, banging on buses and, quote, spewing hateful words toward ethnic groups. Take a listen. And I say to those who believe they're going to use violence by throwing bottles at police officers and migrants, we're not going to accept that. That's the message we sent on Staten Island, and I'm going to send it throughout the city. We'll manage this crisis, but we're not going to do it with violence. New York City, as you know, has become an epicenter of the migrant crisis since the spring of last year. The number of asylum seekers coming to the city Surpassed 100,000, the Adams administration has projected that will cost the city up to $12 billion in the next couple of years as people line up in search of housing 
and other services. Earlier this month, Mayor Adams did say this crisis could, quote, destroy New York City. Well, happening today, Donald Trump is headlining two campaign events in Iowa. Voters there and in New Hampshire are still very much undecided, weighing their options. In just a few months, the New Hampshire primary, first in the nation, will be a crucial test of former President Trump's comeback and proving ground for the general election. CNN's John King joins us now. It is true, or at least was true, JK, that they actually let you out into the wild uh, in your new <laughs> fancy position. Right. Um, and the, the bear is loose. And what, what are you learning now uh, as you're on the ground in New Hampshire? Uh, it's fascinating. Phil and Poppy, good morning to you. Look, remember, it was New Hampshire where Donald Trump got his first win in 2016, and the rest is literally history. That was the hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Uh, what's different now when you go to New Hampshire is there is no doubt Trump leads in the first primary state, but he's not the new guy anymore, and things are, listen, a little different. Heading out in the moonlight. Andrew Konchek often spends 80 hours a week on the water, sometimes more. It is grueling work and it shapes his politics. I'm Republican. Uh, you know, it's, they're, they're more for the working man. Fishing boats have filled this harbor for 400 years. It is a proud but struggling industry, a blue-collar craft where the workers feel ignored by the regulators who set the rules and by the politicians who now want to line the coast with wind turbines. That's going to completely destroy our fishing industry. And so your political decisions are based on? My livelihood. The men we met along these docks are not climate deniers. The water is warmer, the storms wilder, the fish different. But they say the people deciding what to do about it don't ask those who live it every day. I don't think a politician will ever understand what I do for work unless they come on the boat with me and then maybe they'll understand. Any of them ever offer to come on the boat? <laughs> no, no. Distrust and disaffection are easy to find here. I mean, the middle class, the working class, fishermen, all of us, we, we are struggling in this economy. Anger at traditional politicians drew Lucas Raymond to Donald Trump back in 2016. He sees a new insurgent in the 2024 presidential field. I am extremely likely to vote for Robert Kennedy, yes. Why? He is willing to state that we should not blindly trust corporations or our government. And I think he staunchly believes in caring for our environment. Raymond says many Republican-leaning friends feel the same way. My crewmate sent me his interview with Joe Rogan, and I started listening to him, um, and I found many things about him pretty impressive. Two things to know about me. I love craft beer, and I obsess about political math. There you go. How choices like Raymond's could impact not only the primary, but also the vote here next November. Stanley Tremblay shares Raymond's disgust with politics as usual. 2016, Clinton Trump. I wanted neither. I didn't vote for either of them. But third party? Third party. Gary Johnson, I assume. Um, 2020, Biden Trump. Neither. Third party. What are you going to do now? What if you get Biden Trump again? Probably not vote. Tremblay's father was a Vietnam veteran. His brewery is in an old fire station, and signs of service are everywhere. He wants to believe, but he just can't right now. We need to get the old out and bring new in and reinvigorate what hopefully is uh, a better United States. Tremblay would never vote Trump, so you could argue his sitting out the primary helps the former president. Pete Burdett's change of heart hurts Trump. National security is uh, the number one thing uh, 
that uh, any president would need to take precedence over everything else because you don't have an economy if you don't have a country. Burdett served 21 years in the Navy as a helicopter pilot and a flight instructor. Newcomer Trump won him over in 2016. He was a pretty smart guy, and I had met him personally. But Burdett says Trump 2024 is not Trump 2016. He's not focusing on the issues going forward. He seems to be focusing on the issues of the past. I'm done with the past. Nikki Haley is Burdett's choice this time. Still, signs of Trump's New Hampshire advantage are easy to find. It's definitely very much pro-Donald Trump uh, from what I see here on grassroots, on the ground. But Natalia Orlando adds a caveat worth keeping an eye on. I personally don't think that he's as strong as he was in 2016. I have people who argue with me about that and tell me I'm wrong and get mad that I'm saying this, but I'm going to be honest and say, no, I don't see it. Andrew Konchek agrees. Then compared to now, same, different, less, more? I think it'd be less now because all the legal cases and yeah, it did, it did impact him around here. Like in 2016 though, Konchek sees Trump as the best catch in another crowded GOP field. Donald Trump as of right now, but I'm gonna keep it open so that I can make an educated decision. Trump would be first, DeSantis second, yes. Konchek may have to catch the second GOP debate offshore on satellite TV, but fishing season will be on winter break when the primary is held early next year. You know, John, part of your wizardry on the, the magic wall is you have a feel for the places. You've been there so many times that you can describe kind of what it's actually like. How has New Hampshire changed in your, I don't know, dozens upon dozens of times that you've been here there compared to now? So the basic dynamic in the Republican race is what we look at first. Then New Hampshire is likely to be very competitive in the general election as well, even though it's only four electoral votes. As you know, Phil, sometimes four matter. Uh, so right now, uh, Trump is in the lead. There's no question about that. But the insurgency is not his anymore. He's now the establishment, if you will. It's his party. The crowded field, just like in 2016, helps Trump. You sense even talking to Trump voters that there are vulnerabilities, that even some of them have doubts, but nobody has impressed them right now. And if they're looking around, no one Republican has taken charge. So that's the a dynamic to watch in the Republican race. Trump benefits from the big field and the split among the Haley's and the Ramaswamy's and the DeSantis. The bigger question, just as someone who's done this, this is my 10th campaign, I've been doing this for 35 years, it's just the disaffection, it's just the blech. Uh, the prospect of a Biden-Trump rematch, how people just feel, about that guy Stanley Tremblay, Vietnam veteran, Phil, you're from an army family. The guy wants to vote, he's just disgusted by it. Uh, that's sad, uh, that part is sad. It, can somebody come along to get those people to come back into the process? Do they see a stake in national politics. He votes in local elections, don't get me wrong about that, but the national political dynamic and just how people just feel, I know it's not a word, but they just feel bleh about it. Yeah, it's such a good point. Um, noted craft beer enthusiast out in the field, John King, it's, we appreciate uh, it, it, my friend. Thank you. It was, it was good. good. Not for breakfast, but it was good. <laughs> appreciate it, buddy. Thank you, John. Striking workers and the heads of Hollywood studios will be back at the negotiating table today. Television and movie productions have been halted now for more than four months. Raju P. Henson is here to talk about that and also, importantly, her foundation's efforts to destigmatize the mental health conversation in the black community. That's coming up next. She's in studio. Stay with us. The contract talks expected to resume today between the union representing striking writers and Hollywood studios in an effort to end a labor dispute that's disrupted production for more than four months. Writers want higher pay and more protections around the use of artificial intelligence. The WGA is urging members to continue picketing outside studio offices until a deal is reached. Well, our next guest is no stranger to the big screen. Watch. But within these walls, who... Uh 
Who makes the rules? You, sir. You are the boss. You just have to act like one. I would do anything for you. And I did. And you lie. And you cheat on me. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I have something I gotta say. What are you doing? I've been given a gift. I can hear men's thoughts right now because of my gift. James, I know you are not worthy of my friend Mari. Don't we all wish we had that gift? We are joined this morning by actress and producer Taraji P. Henson. She is with us now. Good morning. It Good morning. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to ask you about your life's work, which is so <laughs> impactful. But you're here. Yes. we got to ask you about the strike. Four months are back at the table. It's really financially crippling to, to many actors, right, that haven't had, you know, all the success you've had and producers. Well, what's what's going to happen here? Hopefully we come to an agreement um, because people just want what they deserve, you know, a wage where they can survive in this economy. Um, we're artists, you know, um, we're vulnerable. Um, and we give so much breath and life to the world. And all we're asking is for a wage that people can take care of their families and their um, likeness to be protected. That's not, it's not uncommon. It's not, we're not asking for the world, <laughs> you know, and I feel for actors who haven't seen the success that I have in a lot of my friends because, you know, we're fine during the strike, but we're striking as a whole because we're a family, you know, um, and if one artist is struggling, we're all struggling. You mentioned the issue of likeness. The industry is going through such, our industry as well, so many mm -hmm. rapid changes right now on artificial intelligence, which has been a central issue uh, in these talks uh, and in the, the demands from uh, the writers and the actors what concerns you, kind of big picture, as you look into that as, a, as an issue as an actress? Well, as an actress, it's the likeness. It's my likeness. Um, I want to control that. <laughs> I don't want industry, um, you know, um, studios to be able to use my likeness in, perpetu in perpetuity. Even after I'm gone, like, I still have family that's here that could benefit from the work that I've done. You know what I mean? And I don't want it to go to artificial intelligence. It's, that's weird to me. <laughs> I don't think um, society's ready for that just yet. Yeah. And there are, good, there are good aspects of artificial intelligence, but we just have to figure out what that is. Yeah. Let's turn to uh, why you're here. Yes. And that is what you have launched, this initiative, She Cares Wellness Pods. These are at HC, HBCU campuses. Before you talk about that, this has been your fight for years. Here is you testifying before Congress in 2019 wow. on mental health. We in the African-American community, we don't deal with mental health issues. We don't even talk about it. We've been taught to pray our problems away. I need the person sitting opposite for me when I go seek help for my mental to be culturally competent. And if you're not culturally competent, how can I trust you with my deepest secrets and with my vulnerability? You have called this your life's work, not acting, mm. this fight. Yeah, because um, as people and as humans, we're here to service each other. Um, and for me, it was always about how can I affect as many people 
on the planet while I'm alive as, as possible? How can I do that in a positive way? And for, while, for years, I thought it was through acting. You know, maybe I will change a life with this character or maybe not, you know. But the work that I'm doing now with the foundation, this is real work that is really saving lives. The, the idea and then the delivery on wellness pods at HBCUs, mm -hmm. the availability and the kind of you can see it mm -hmm. is so critically important yes. on the destigmatization side of things. Mm -hmm. How'd you kind of get to this point? Well, at the Lawrence Lawrence Hansen Foundation, we like to meet people where they are in their mental health journey. Some people are advanced. You know, they have therapists, they've been going for years, they have tools, they know how to work out their issues. A lot of people, especially in underserved communities, they're new to the notion of seeking help. You heard me say in the black community, we don't, we've never been told to uh, talk about or, or be vulnerable. That was a weakness for us, you know? And so this is new. This whole notion of talking about needing help and getting help in that matter is very new to, to the African-American community. And um, it, like I said, it's about meeting people where they are. Some people, uh, it's very still stigmatized. You know, um, I had someone ask me yesterday, what would you say to a person who is trying to seek therapy for the first time and they may feel uncomfortable. I said the great thing and the blessing that came out of the pandemic was start with a Zoom with a therapist. You're in the comforts of your own home. You know, um, that's a great way to start. That's a good tippy toe into <laughs> getting your mental wellness. Um, and so that's the thing. We try to meet people where they are and we make it warm and welcoming. I think when people think about therapy, they think of a sterile room and it's all white and it's, you know, <laughs> it's daunting to some people. So with these pods, it's very welcoming. Um, you don't have to seek a therapist right away. You can just convene and talk about mental wellness. Maybe sometimes it's somebody's first conversation ever about the subject matter. But it's in a warm, safe place. We do. Um, you don't have to do yoga. It can be African dance. It's just ways to... Because what's happening is we don't have enough therapists. Right. <laughs> you know? And so we're trying to teach or build a module where people can... They have tools that they can get to right away to work out issues. And it may not involve, it may just be community for some people. Some, a lot of people are isolating, they're suffering in silence. And we just want to break that up because you're never alone. You're never alone. Everybody has a cross to bear. <laughs> Good for you. Thank you for <laughs> Thank doing you. this work. And Kate Spade, I can't say enough, um, the best partner we have found in them. And it's been very organic and we're family now. Such an important issue. We really appreciate you coming in. You Thank saw you. the pods on the screen. Um, use them. Taraji B. Henson. Thank, Thank you. you so much. CNN News Central starts right after this break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking.
Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.